Hello, welcome to another episode of the Beatles Books podcast. My name is Joe Wisby and I'm archiving my collection of Beatles books on Instagram at the account at Books Beatles. My guest today is Paul Dunoya, a Liverpool-born author, editor and former music journalist. He brings us the complete John Lennon songs, a completely revised and updated version of his 1997 book, we All Shine On, which recounts John Lennon's life after the Beatles by analysing his solo music track by track. Paul Denoy, hello and welcome to the Beatles Books podcast. How are you today? I'm very well, Joe, and uh, very pleased to be here. Very kind of you to say. Thank you so much. So we, uh, you, bring, you bring us the complete John Lennon songs, uh, which is, as I'm sure many of my listeners will know, uh, is a reissued, repackaged and new version of your original 1997 book covering all of John Lennon's solo material. Um, if we could delve back into the past just slightly, uh, first of all, I was wondering what the original inspiration was around the 1997 version of this book. Yeah, well, the original inspiration was um, uh, a phone call and the promise of a check <laughs> um, in other words, it wasn't my idea okay. at all. Uh, a company called Carlton Books uh, had begun um, a, a series of um, similar books. The first one, which you might know, was, was by a guy called Steve Turner. It was called uh, In, in um, Hard Day's Ride. Um, and that was, um, you know, every, the story behind every Beatles song. Very good book, tremendously well-researched. And so they, they brought out a couple more and then they turned to me and said, could you do something similar on the, uh, the solo uh, work of John Lennon, which I was delighted to do. Um, I'd, I'd been a music journalist by then for nearly 20 years. So the next stage for me was to, was to do a book and for somebody just to approach me and offer me a bit of money to do a book was great, you know. Um, and besides, it was John Lennon. So there was really no way I could turn it down. I love that music. Did you feel there was an element, obviously 97 was post-anthology, so the Beatles were kind of back everywhere again. Um, did, did, you find, did you think there was an element that John's solo work was a little bit overlooked at that point? I always think it has been, actually. I thought that then, and it's, it's similar now. I mean, history, you know, popular history has a way of narrowing things down, doesn't it? You know, we, we define famous people by one or two things and we define people's musical histories by a couple of things in the end, which tends to get narrower as, as time goes by. And John, of course, is very much, well, I mean, you know, it's, it, you know, it's, it's imagined. It might be one or two, Merry Christmas War is over, possibly. Very little else, sad to say. And that, um, I mean, that's just the way it goes with everybody, I suppose, over the course of the decades. Um, and, I, and I thought, well, I'd like to put up a little bit, of, you know, before posterity forgets uh, too much, I'd like to put up a little bit of a rear guard uh, action on, on uh, his behalf and say, you know, nothing wrong with give peace a chance, imagine, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, please just look, just look into the details a bit more closely and there'll be things that you possibly never heard before. Because let's face it, you know, they weren't always big sellers. Imagine was a big selling album. Um, but the rest of it sold, and, and Double Fantasy, I guess, was a big seller for possibly for the wrong kind of reasons. But yeah. A lot of John's stuff uh, is pretty obscure, you know. I'm surprised now, and I have been surprised over the years, how few people actually know 
much about, say, um, Walls and Bridges, you know, which is the, that's the album I always kind of go into bat for and say, you know, if you want a nice surprise about John, and listen to Walls and Bridges. And, and perhaps even more so if, and this is where a book like mine is of some small degree of help, I think, because sometimes music actually is better when you know a bit of the story behind it. Sometimes you don't need the story, obviously. The music is just the music. But, mm. but in the case of John Lennon, a lot of his music was, 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 was so closely rooted in the reality of his life mm. that I find it, anyway, I, always found, I found it really fascinating to write the book because I could uncover the close connections that existed between the, the life he was living and the songs that he was uh, writing. Walls and Bridges. We can talk about Walls and Bridges later if you like, but that's a we definitely good will. example. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. What I was going to do, you think there was any, over the course of you writing the original volume of this, did you come across any challenges in, in writing it? And by the time you'd finished writing it and it was ready to go, did your opinion of, of John's music or John himself change at all? I think, I think what happened for me was that my, I'd always liked, I'd always liked all of his solo music. Um, but I liked some of it a lot more than I liked other bits. So, you know, my, my, my premise was never to say all of John's solo music was great. And if you don't think so, you're wrong. And I'm here to persuade you that you're, you know, that you're wrong and I'm right. It's all great. It's, I don't think it's all great. Uh, we can all form our own personal opinions based on our own preferences. Um, some of it I, I never really listen to much nowadays. Okay. But even so, it's still as a narrative, as a, uh, for, for me as a writer, it was it was all interesting because it's all reflecting something that was going on in his um, in his life. And I don't have to claim that all of it is the greatest music he made. Clearly, it isn't. Clearly, it isn't. Um, but 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 on the other hand, some of it actually is. You know, some of it is Beatles standard great. I think, and that's what I would just like to point out to people. Really, I think that definitely comes across in it in the book um so let's let's have a little trawl through john's solo discography in chronological order um so generally if we if we're looking at albums those first two records that, that come out in 70 and 71 john Lennon, plasticano band and imagine are generally the ones that appear in greatest albums lists and the ones that were received the best critically at the time and and they've generally maintained that critical reception the imagine box came out two years ago i think it was you know that that kind of treatment some of john's later albums almost certainly wouldn't get uh do you think that that obviously you know they're both records that are very different in in sound and in themes but they're both definitely successful records artistically for john uh do you think that they're records that deserve that praise you know, are you generally of that opinion that they were the strongest two albums that you made? Um, the, yes, I think they probably are, actually. It's always, I mean, there's a real temptation amongst um, anybody who writes, there's a real temptation to go for um, um, the revisionist mm. line, because, I mean, I'm not going to make any headlines if I say, guess what, John Lennon's first two solo albums were the best. Yeah. It's kind of, you know, well, that's what everybody thinks already, you know, so, but but there's no point trying to be a contrarian uh, for the sake of it, actually. Um, I would encourage, I do find, I have to encourage people a bit to listen to the, so, the first solo record. I mean, that is, um, as you say, it's, it's critically well regarded. I'm not sure that it sold all that much. And it probably sold as many as it did because 
it was the first solo record since John had left the Beatles. So it was in its own, in its own right, it was a big event. Um, just as you know, McCartney's first solo album was a big event. Um, I think a lot of people listen to John Lennon Plastic Owner Band and were a bit disappointed because it's not an easy album, is it? It's not like Imagine, you know, it's very difficult not to like Imagine. Um, mm. I mean, the album as a whole, because it's, it's a very, you know, it's, not, well, it's, not easy list, it's not an easy listening album as such, but it's a very easy album to listen to and a very easy album to enjoy mm. and to love. But the first one, John Lennon, is, it is really stark. Mm. I mean, I think it's great as a piece of music. Um, I, pro I probably, you know, if you, if you, if, you know, if, if I were forced to do it, I'd probably nominate that as my personal favourite of his, certainly one of my favourite albums by anybody uh, ever. But I, I, at the same time, I'm always a little bit cautious when I recommend it to people because not everybody wants to be put through the experience, you know, the, the slightly harrowing experience of, yeah. of that album. And that's fair enough. You know, people look for different things out of music yeah. and most people are looking for a bit of enjoyment, to be honest. <laughs> Do you think Imagine was, I mean, I think John himself, did he say it was Platicano Band covered in chocolate or something you know do you think it yeah. was a, do you think it was a, a, a deliberate attempt to make a similar record but you know use strings phil Spector? you know obviously I, I, my, my feeling is they probably realized that um he had to make a bit he had to make a bit of a concession to um commercialism um because after all i mean we know that john was many things he was an avant-garde explorer and so on and so on. But above all, John Lennon was a pop star and he'd, he'd grown accustomed, as who wouldn't, to being at the top of the charts with everything that he put out and having the, if not, even if he didn't need the adoration of screaming fans anymore, he, he certainly would have wanted the attention of the world. And he probably felt that it was, beho he, he really had a, an obligation to, go the extra mile and get um, Phil Spector in and um, get Phil Spector into full effect, in other words, bring in a few, a uh, bit of an orchestra, you know, do those magical Phil Spectory things, get some great musicians um, back. Uh, I mean, a bigger, you know, a bigger collection of great musicians than he had on the very stripped down John Lennon thing and, uh, and get some, get some things up in the singles charts. Um, um, because after all, that was really his job description. You know, John Lennon, yeah. pop star, as well as John Lennon, prophet, bringer of peace, or whatever else he wanted to say. I think he felt, and also, of course, you know, the big, you know, the monkey on any solo Beatles back is well, you know, the, th the three monkeys on the solo Beatles back <laughs> in those days were the other three Beatles. Because I mean, you can go off and be as arty as you like, but those three other bastards, they're going to go and keep making... I mean, even Ringo was making yeah. hit records, for God's sake. Yeah. George was making the best music of his life. Um, God bless him, you know. Yeah. And, jo and Paul, of course, was always liable to bring out some top 10, uh, top three, top, uh, top of the chart thing. So, jo and John, I think, was not going to sit back and say, OK, well, I surrender that game yeah. to those guys, you know. Mm. Commercial, um, his own... Um, his pride, his self-worth, I think would have prompted a bit, a bit more of a commercial effort on his part. It didn't always, but it did at that point. Speaking of the other Beatles there, I'm going to very briefly and slightly just go off piste here, because obviously it would be um, it was entirely fair of me to say that one of your other wonderful books that, again, most people would know about listening to this podcast is your Conversations with McCartney book. Uh, right. on, 
on imagine how do you sleep is is, is there um do you think that this was something not necessarily drawing from your conversations with paul but but just generally do you think this was something that 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 affected paul and do you think john set out to to just cause trouble with paul or make a statement or or react to paul's work on ram um yeah well there was i mean there were multiple tensions uh, at play with between john and paul and had been since um, you know, since the, the last days of the Beatles, and mm. actually bef- probably before earlier than the last mm. days of the Beatles, there were tensions between the two of them. Um, but Paul, I think, would would very seldom express something as openly as John did that day, that particular day of the recording of um, "How Do You Sleep." I have to say, sonically, <laughs> I think it's a marvelous record. <laughs> I love the sound of "How Do You Sleep." Mm. Um, I even think as a as a crafted lyric, it's a wonderful f- piece of work. Actually, I've got to doff my hat. I I feel a bit for, for McCartney, obviously, mm. um, and I know that I mean I happen to know, and it's no secret that he was desperately um, hurt. But I was never convinced by John's attempts to backtrack later on, saying, "Well, I was really aiming it at myself." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah come on, John, yeah. come on. <laughs> yeah, no, no way. Um, it was music, but I think part of the context is we have to remember that John at this point was still thick with uh, Alan Klein, who was, I mean, whenever Paul talks about those days, mm. he's very careful to frame it as the era of my big arguments with Alan Klein not my big arguments with John. Mm. Um, he, Paul tends to use Alan Klein as a kind of proxy in the war that he was having, in the, you know, in the conflicts he was having with uh, John. And I think Klein did egg John on a little bit. I mean, we do, from people I've spoken to at the sessions, they say that Klein was prompting John with a few lyrical suggestions here and there. And, uh, so that was the context that John was working in at least for that, for at least for that week, at least for the week he wrote it. Um, but the other thing you, you always have to remember about John is that he was mercurial. Um, he would believe something passionately, and then a month later, you know, someone would remind him and say, "What? Me? Who? What?" You know, um, and that went for political views, uh, views about other people, things. He his opinions on almost everything was liable to um, drastic revision. Um, um, at short notice but that was part of you know it's part of the, the magic of John Lennon really absolutely absolutely so moving on from Imagine it's obviously a success and then he decides in September of 71 to relocate to New York City he leaves the large shall we say property in Tittenhurst and Ascot behind and he settles for uh, for life in, in New York uh, the the two records that come out from that period, well, certainly one from that period, is obviously sometime in New York City. Uh, and then that's followed up by, by Mind Games. Now, in contrast to those first two records, these are albums that are received quite poorly, critically, certainly sometime in New York City, and commercially, both in the States and in, in the UK and elsewhere the chart positions are not, as you were saying earlier, the chart positions that John Lennon would be used to. Uh, two, two questions ar- around these albums. What do you think changed in John personally, creatively, from the John that recorded Certainly Imagine? And do you think that the assessment of these albums is being 
slightly kind of economy class Lenin Solo works is fair. Yeah, well, to, to answer the second question, again, I'm, I'm, I feel slightly embarrassed to say I kind of go with the consensus again. Um, I don't like some time in New York City. Um, and I, I mean, I can't... I, it's... You know, I can try, I can make a defence for it. And I, I kind of see where that arose. He, he, he entered, he went into New York. He was, he was not only leaving London for New York, he was also leaving a very cosseted London existence. It wasn't even London, actually. It was, you know, it was right in the, out in the distant hmm. suburbs. Um, he exchanged that for the very centre of New York and actually downtown New York. Hmm. Um, you know, the, as you know, the Dakota came later on. Hmm. I mean, that was a real celebrity bubble of a bolt hole. But, but here he's living in um, Greenwich Village and, um, and he's very accessible. Uh, he, is, he is ultra accessible. Kind of any chancer in New York is never short of a few ambitious, mouthy chances. Uh, I say that with uh, you know great affection for yeah. New York mouthy chances, but they were not um, uh, they were not slow in coming forward. You know, they, John Lennon is living round the corner. Why don't we just go round there and give him an earful of what's on our minds? And and and, and John, you know, to his credit, he's so open to that. So in some ways, he was a. Has a I don't know whether I should say impressionable, it makes him sound silly, but he was impressionable in the sense that he was very open, very receptive, uh, particularly towards um, causes that he was quite inclined to anyway. He was growing, I suppose he was growing away from, he was growing away from the hippie time towards a more hard-edged radicalism when the agenda was not um, if we all sit back and close our eyes and just imagine ourselves as groovy and beautiful, then we'll become groovy and beautiful and probably the world will become groovy and beautiful. Um, he's now meeting people who are saying, sod that for a game of soldiers. It's not going to work like that. You know, we've all got to put tin hats on and join arms and march down the street in, in paramilitary uniforms. We've got to cause a riot uh, because we're going to start a ripple effect that's going to uh, affect political change. You know, in, in the American context, that first and foremost was we're going to put pressure on to stop the, um, the war in Vietnam, um, which could then be, which could then be um, extrapolated to other causes towards feminism and racial equality and so on and so on. Uh, and, so, and John came under the influence of some very forceful and, and very articulate, very intelligent people who, as I say, had only to knock on his door and find him uh, there. So I think those things um, led to uh, sometime in New York City, and it also had, he also had a kind of good rationale behind it. It was, he'd written perhaps his best solo song, Instant Karma, had been written um, in days. Uh, he thought, you know, if I put my mind to it, I can just hammer out a song. I can get the band, go in the studio, get it in the shops, fortnight tops, you know, mm-hmm. which is more or less what he did with Instant Karma. And he thought, why don't I just do that all the while? Um, I could do, do the musical equivalent of journalism. I could, I could have an idea about something that's on my mind. I can, I've got this great bar band, uh, Elephant's Memory, who were a very good bar band. We could bash the whole thing out, stick it on the streets as far as soon as the record company bureaucracy will allow us. And we get the message out to the people straight away, almost as fast as a daily newspaper, hence the, you know, the artwork of that album. And that's a good, that's a good story. It's a good argument. 
the trouble is that, you know, and I speak as a journalist, um, journalism is all very well, but it has a very short shelf life. Mm. <laughs> and that seems to be the case with a lot of the songs that uh, he did write on that uh, record. I don't think the, the radicalism of the ideas was a problem necessarily, but some of the instances were too fleeting, too transient. Um, John Sinclair is one of the songs, and John Sinclair was, uh, I mean, um, he was certainly stitched up badly by the American authorities, but three months on, you know, John Sinclair was out of prison. It wasn't three months, whatever it was. The story comes and goes, you know. Yeah. Angela Davis was a big news story for a little while. The underlying causes don't go away, as, as we understand, but the particular story of Angela Davis came and went, and, and she went off to be a, you know, well... Um, respected Marxist academic, you know, the story is gone and the, and the song has got nothing to, 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 to detain us emotionally um, months and years later. So it has that inherent flaw, I guess, as a, as a record. All the live stuff, um, you know, there's an extra album of live stuff and that is indulgent. I mean, not even Frank Zappa could listen to that record and Frank Zappa had a pretty high tolerance for difficult music. I hated that record and I, I, I suppose records like that, and um, just speaking of Yoko for a moment, yeah, I've got to I've got to know Yoko a little bit over the years, and okay. certainly I through the course of writing this book, I became more interested in her music for the first time. For the first time, I would listen to Double Fantasy as if it as if it actually were a two person record, because like most people, when it came out, I thought, well, it's John's record with interruptions by Yoko, you know. I had that quite dismissive, and I, I've now rather revised that over the years. But I've, I started out from that point of view because I began with, do you remember um, Live in Toronto, that 1969? With the cloud loved, on the cover. Right. I loved that, um, Al, I loved the, um, the live, it was, it was John with, you know, Eric Clapton and Klaus Vorman. It was a lovely, tough, live rock and roll album. Um, but I can't stand the Yoko stuff, which takes up side two. Yeah. And I bought it, you know, I wasn't a rock journalist. I was, I was a young teenager. I was practically spending pocket money. And I thought, bloody hell, I bought a John Lennon album and the second half of it is just this screeching. And I can't stand it. And I was really annoyed. And same went for a lot of the stuff on um, Live in New York City. Mm. And to this day, it, it's a paradox to me that the Yoko Ono work that is best known is the most exposed. It's it's the stuff on jo uh, the Toronto Live album. It's the stuff on Sometime in New York City. It's the stuff she did on some of the B-sides of his early singles, which of course had massive exposure because it was early John Lennon solo material. What people don't know, and what I didn't know at that time, was that she moved away from that. She moved towards a much more mainstream, almost AOR kind of style. Um, and then later on uh, was more was very interested in new uh, developments in in, uh, in electronica and dance music, and by by the 1980s, by her early solo career, she was making really splendid music, which deserves attention as well. I mean, it took me a long while to learn that, but mm. you know you you know you don't know what you don't know when you're a kid, I suppose. And it took me a while, so that's part of what I learned in the process of all of this. But anyway, just to go back to your question about New York City, that's part of the problem that's that's part of the um uh, the baggage which that album had to deal with at the time i guess mm. yeah i think it's as you say a little bit like songs like uh free nelson mandela by the by the 
the specials, it suddenly, it's all well and good for that one moment. And even though the themes are important, a lot of these songs, they suddenly sound out of date. And a lot of that record sounds, sounds a little bit out of date now. It's not one that would reach to an, you know, an 18, 19 year old today. So uh, moving on then, you mentioned earlier, your apparent affection for walls and bridges i I have to say personally i i agree i I think it's uh it's a great record it it came out of quite a well maybe a dark point it's a a little bit of a strong suggestion in in john's life but obviously it's the record most associated with lost weekend and maypang and and harry nilsson uh do you think it's a record that is still underrated and do you think that the lost weekend and and john's slight personality changed primarily because he was with May affected the recording of it? Yeah, it was, um, I think it's still underrated in the sense that um, I don't get the impression that many people listen to it much, but it does have the, it has the virtue of one absolutely standout glorious um, single on it in number nine dream. And I mean, I didn't listen, I didn't hear the album until, at the time. When, did it, when was it? Nineteen seventy-four. I remember Number Nine Green being on the radio, and I remember thinking that's one of the greatest singles, certainly one of the greatest singles of the year. And I still love that single. But in the seventies, myself, I was late teenager, early, just going into my twenties. I was a student, and I have to say, John Lennon was not front of my mind. I was a big David Bowie fan, actually. Um, by the time of um, young Americans, I thought, how lucky is John Lennon to be on a record with David Bowie? <laughs> Not, you know, rather than vice versa. Um, I mean, uh, great that they, now I just think great that the two of them met and were apparently quite good, uh, you know, close friends and so on. Um, but after, Mind Games was a bit kind of psycho babbly a bit and John was just not quite sure, I suppose, um, which way to go. Um, but Walls and Bridges has got this awful clarity in it because he's no longer confused. He knows he's miserable. Mm. <laughs> mm. Um, and from this clarity, this dreadful uh, clarity of uh, depression, which leads to uh, lots of uh, drunkenness and bad behavior and so on, he at least has a kind of a, an agenda for his songwriting. Uh, it kind of produces some. Um, it brings him back to the directness uh, of, of, of his best songwriting because he's got a subject in hand. It's, I really miss Yoko and my life is crap. I'm going nowhere. <laughs> I mean, you know, the subject is I'm having a great time with Ringo and Harry Nielsen and Keith Moon and the whole gang when they're, when they're passing around the, you know, the Brandy Alexanders or whatever. And I've got Mae Pang, who's lovely and blah, blah, blah. I haven't got the main thing in my life, which is, which is Yoko. Mm. Um, and also I'm wasting my time. He, he, you know, he, I mean, as you, I'm sure you know, he, he attempted to make that record and, uh, and some rock and roll stuff with Phil Spector. And it was so diabolically chaotic um, because Phil Spector, you know, was certainly no force for stability in anybody's life. At that stage. <laughs> <laughs> um, but as I say, it, it gave him, you know, the, the, the simplicity of his predicament uh, gave him a kind of uh, focus. And I, I, I believe there isn't a, a weak um, track on that um, whole album. And there's some, I think, um, exceptionally strong things. I'm scared and so on. Um, so I, yes, I always put up a, I always try to put up a, a, a big uh, case for that uh, record. Yeah, I think for me, it's, 
bless you is my highlight of that record, which oh, yeah, is, yeah. Is, which yeah. obviously is is an ode, uh, you know, a call to Yoko. Uh, I think you know you mentioned earlier about beetle quality i think that's one that that should be far better known wasn't a yeah, single was yeah. it yeah, i think it's just 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 a, a beautiful track so obviously then we have the rock and roll album which as you say had quite a, a checkered a checkered history uh do you think this is you know he he sounds more relaxed certainly on on this do you think this is a record that uh, that he really enjoyed making eventually I, th- I think so. I, I don't know whether he really, um, really, I don't think he raised a sweat to make it, to be honest. Um, I, think he, um, I think he enjoyed it because it was so easy to do. I mean, again, I mean, you and many of your listeners will, will know the background story and it's too long and boring to go into, but it was a contractual obligation um, of an album. But I think his view was, well, if I've got to make this record, then at least um, let's have a bit of fun uh, doing it. And he never did lose his love for those old um, rock and roll um, tracks. Um, so it's pretty relaxed. I always think of it as a, 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 it's a low voltage uh, kind of rock and roll record. I mean, this is John Lennon who made some of the fiercest uh, rock and roll ever. He, you know, when, with the Beatles, he made some of the fiercest rock and roll, any white rock and roll, even going back to the days of Eddie Cochran and Buddy Holly and Elvis Presley, you know. Nobody really rocked as hard as, as the Beatles led by John Lennon did on Tristan Shout and Dizzy Miss Lizzie and um, those sorts of tracks. This, of course, is a different kind of John Lennon rock and roll here. This is much more mellow. Mm. Um, it's settling into a nice groove. Um, you know, there's no kind of punishing of the, the larynx involved in the way there was with, say, uh, Tristan Shout. Mm. So I got the impression he really liked it. And of course, he knew he was ticking a box. He was getting rid of an, an inconvenient, annoying um, uh, legal uh, problem at the same time. And as he said just afterwards, and it was kind of benefit of hindsight, I suppose, because it was a rock and roll record, they found this lovely old uh, vintage picture of him in Hamburg. Great picture, you know, Brilliant. with the Teddy Boy Quiff, the leather jacket. And um, and he's signing off, you know, goodbye from uh, from the, from the studio in New York. And although he didn't precisely know it at the time, it was the kind of end of. Well, he would have said end of Act One, you know, John Lennon solo, end of Act One, mm-hmm. with a little nod back to where it all where I where I came in, lovely great fifties rock and roll, leather jacket, Hamburg. Now I'm signing off for a little while, you know, took me take a bit of a breather, and then we come back strong as ever. Well, you know, history has a different story, but it's a nice—it's a nice kind of way of packaging that um, end of the uh, of the John Lennon tale. Mm. Uh, and and then after that, there he was gone, and we didn't yeah. have jo- we didn't have John Lennon for for for, for five years. Um, yeah. So obviously, I, I went to ask you specifically about this because, as we know, in 1980, uh, uh, Double Fantasy arrives and you were in quite um, a unique position here because I think I'm right in saying obviously by this point you were a music journalist are you at the NME in, yeah. in 1980? I okay. just, yes I just joined the staff of the enemy that year. Okay yeah. so the reviews for Double Fantasy in those two weeks before John was killed were generally quite mixed and they were particularly mixed in the UK as opposed to the US what yeah. was what was the reaction, you know, around music fans and in particularly 
journalists of a new John Lennon record coming out. Was there a big desire in the UK at that point for a new album by John? Yeah, um, because the, the, crucial, the crucial thing about those five years between 1975 to 1980 was, um, especially in Britain, was uh, punk rock. Hmm. I, mean, I mean, it's kind of glib to say there was a musical revolution in 1976, but there was a musical revolution in Britain. There wasn't in America. America had great, some great punk bands, Ramones, Blondie, etc. Mm. But that was, that was, in American terms, that was a storm in a New York teacup. You know, America just went on. America just goes on its own way, you know. Um, uh, America was still all about guys in plaid shirts, punching the air, going woohoo for Ted Nugent or, or grooving to Fleetwood Mac, you know, wonderful AOR music. Mm. The kerfuffle in New York was just a localised kerfuffle, mm. whereas in Britain, punk rock was tremendously important, especially to people who worked on the music press. Okay. And I think the view was, well, you know, we all kind of recognise John as being the prophet from many, from, from many years ago, who had sort of been the originator of the spirit of British punk rock. But where was he now? You know, the, remember the, there was a thing, there was a thing, the thing the enemy was, you know, John, the revolutionist started, where were you? You know, it was, um, we kind of expected him to become the figurehead of the right. movement, which we thought he was a spiritual godfather to. But of course he didn't, he wasn't, he was too busy just to hold up it. He was, he was being the house husband, he was raising the child. He, he was making demos. He was traveling the, the world incognito, um, taking a few drugs as well. Um, he wasn't that. He wasn't passionately interested in what was going on in London. Um, I don't think. But we thought he should be more involved. And so I guess that our expectation was. And bear in mind, at that point, we hadn't been listening to the Dakota demos or anything. We hadn't heard anything from John since the, the Rock and Roll album. We just thought wow, how is John going to respond to the revolution of 1976, 77? Um, and then, this, then this, at the very end of 1980, this, um, towards the end of 1980, this, this album came out. I remember my personal impression was, because I, I, I was such a Beatles loyalist, even unfashionably in the NME world of those days. I mean, I was the, I was, I was the one they sent to interview Paul McCartney because I was the only one who wanted to talk to Paul McCartney. I always did, because I was very junior in 1979, I was the youngest guy in the room. They said, oh Christ, who wants to go up to Liverpool to talk to Paul McCartney? And they said to me, Paul, you're from Liverpool, do you want to come and see your mum? You get a free trip, we'll pay your trip. I said, yeah, I, I, yeah, I want to go up and see my mum and dad, great. But I'd also, yeah, actually, I'd really like to talk to Paul. They said, yeah, there's a catch. You've got to talk to Paul, but even worse, you've got to talk to Linda. It's the deal. I don't mind, I'd love to talk to Linda. And I did love talking to Linda. But so um, they thought, bloody hell, he's, a re he's really got this Beatle thing a bit bad. Um, <clears throat> um, so when the Lennon album came out, I thought, I was just so happy to hear this again. I was pleased. But I remember going to the office. I just, that week, I just interviewed um, the jam. I was a major uh, jam fan um, in my big group at the time. And, um, I didn't, I'd reviewed, for that issue, I'd reviewed um, the sound effects of the Jam new album. I'd been on the road with the Jam, and I was really obsessed. I thought Paul Weller had always loved the Jam, but I thought Paul Weller was naturally, he's doing what the Beatles are doing. He's going from a great simplicity towards a magnificent complexity. Um, maybe I'm overstating the case, but the Jam are really developing in a 
a marvelous way in the same way that the Beatles developed, because sound effects are now looking back. It was a step on from the early moddy jam mm. albums. And I'd given it a really great review. And Charles Sean Murray, who was the, he was kind of the older generation of enemy people to me, but um, he was sitting across the office as we were typing these reviews. And actually wrote at the end of the review saying, I'm pissed off because I wish I was reviewing the Jam album, <laughs> which I was sitting across the room reviewing. Um, I kind of knew what he meant. Um, so Double Fantasy is a difficult album to reevaluate, you know, because we're now doing it in the, with the, you know, with the, uh, in, in the benefits of our dreadful uh, hindsight. I can kind of understand the music reception it received at the time. Um, I still love bits of it. Well, yeah, I, was like, I think it's, looking back at it now, I think it, it sounds better now because it, it doesn't really sound like an, a, a 1980 record as such. It's got quite a, yes, it, you know, there's, there's an MOR as much as an AOR element to it. Yes. You know, there's, there's no question that songs like Beautiful Boy are, are, are a long way from, you know, the slits, shall we say, you know, there's, there's no relation there. Um, so I think, but I, you know, I, my next question was, do you think Double Fantasy is one of John's records that actually, in, in its own way, stands up better than, than some of those mid-70s ones? Because it's kind of yeah. less of its time than those. It does stand up, I think, um, uh, for, for two reasons. One, that um, it's unashamedly the, the, the work of a man in, um, on the brink of middle age. Well, in fact, he was, you know, he just, he was, he was turning 40, wasn't he? And... Um, I think in those days, um, 40 seemed older than it does nowadays. Yeah. Um, I mean, certainly to people like me, we were in our early 20s and we thought 40 was kind of an old age pensioner. I've got a, <laughs> I'd say I've got a far different perspective on it now. Um, but I think we all thought, the guy's very old, you know, he's, he's a bit past it. He's writing songs about his baby boy, for God's sake, you know. Mm. You know, later on, you know, it was, it, I mean, obviously, I've grown a lot older. I've had baby boys myself. I've had a I've had a long term marriage, and and I, you know, I've had to view relationships from the point of view of middle age, um, as opposed to the the point of view of young love, which is a staple of pop music and rock and roll. Mm. And John was pioneering that. Um, you know, is is rock and roll something that can only be made by people up to the age of twenty three and a half? Should they then stop making? <laughs> pop or rock and roll records. He was trying to explore how this might be got around. Here we said, I'm making this record for me and Yoko, but for all of our own age group as well. It's, hey, you know, we've been through this trip, this journey since the 60s, and here we all are, you know, we're all looking around and checking, are we all in one piece? Are we all okay? You know, we've been through so much in the 70s. And I was a bit too young to be terribly interested, but of course now I'm not only am I that age, I'm actually far beyond that age, and I can see what he was doing. I also appreciate far more the, the value of Yoko's contributions as well. I, I, I appreciate far more now than I, than I could have been bothered to do at the time, to be honest. Um, there is an interplay, there is a, um, a dialogue going on here in these, in these songs, which they said there was at the time and I thought yeah okay well I'll take a word for it but I didn't particularly take it on board and um, as time goes by so yes I do I do warm more to that record and even actually to Milk and Honey which is albeit slightly cobbled together necessarily it's slightly cobbled together 
together. But for the same reasons, I now see that as a more coherent and emotionally persuasive kind of record as well. I think Milk and Honey, just again, speaking personally, I think Milk and Honey's his songs are just as strong as on Double Fantasy. Things like, you know, I'm, I'm stepping out. Nobody, nobody told me would have been a hit. I think unquestionably, you know, that, that would have been a hit. You know, and there's a slightly more contemporary sound to his yeah. songs on, on Milk and on what, what, what was to be Milk and Honey than were on Double Fantasy. Um, so uh, j- just coming back to the book now. So here we are again in, in 2020 with a, a new version of this book. Uh, just a couple of questions around the book itself. Was there anything in particular that prompted this reissue of, of this particular book? Yeah, well, uh, again, I mean... Um... It wasn't my idea for a book in the first, in the first place, and the, the format was just given to me. I, I had no say, and they gave me a template and said, "You've got." They basically said, "You've got four weeks to write this book according to this template." In nineteen ninety-seven, the publishers were pretty. They were pretty old school. They weren't terribly nice people, actually. The new book has been brought out by. It's been taken over by new publishers, and they are, I have to say, far nicer people. The book, the old book, um, came out time and time again it was published in many countries it was republished in this country always under different titles which i hated because i thought it was a bit of a swizz actually i called it we all shine on because it was a it was a great uplifting catch line from my favorite john lennon song we all shine on i thought that's i was so so myself that's the perfect choice for a title the publisher said yeah okay but then they kept reissuing it with a different title every time which i thought was I just thought it was bad, um, bad practice, really. Um, but this time around, they came back to me and, al- and allowed me to update it. Um, it's got a new title, but it is a new book. It's got, they've got the rights from Yoko to reprint John's lyrics now, which is a very useful addition to, mm. instead of just me, <laughs> instead of me just waffling on telling you what the song is saying, now you can look across the page and there is the mm. original lyric. Um, also, over the years, I've had the chance to incorporate... I've interviewed Yoko quite a bit over the years now because I, I work with her on some of John Lennon issues and got on well with her. In fact, jo- Yoko was very... She was a very big supporter of the original 1997 book. She was always very complimentary about that. So, so I've got Yoko on board with this book and I've also had time to weave in more interviews with Beatle people. Um, Sean Lennon is in the... Cynthia, lots of Beatle people anyway that I've interviewed over the years. They're all in, uh, being represented. I, in my grace of regret, obviously, then, is that I ever get, never got to meet John Lennon, but I've met nearly everybody that was important in his life. Uh, Paul McCartney and Cynthia and Yoko and Sean and blah, blah, blah. All these people are in there somewhere um, expressing their opinions. So, so I think it's a much richer book than I was able to write in 19... 97, it's got a nice Andy Warhol front cover and nicer design and I managed to persuade the publishers finally to get rid of the full page picture of Mark Chapman, which is in the really uh, ingloriously in the first edition, because I have no say in the design, but okay. over the years I kept saying, please, for God's sake, take out the full page picture of Mark Chapman. They finally listened to me, so I'm pleased. <laughs> and quite right too. Quite right too. Uh, just, just, just briefly again. You've mentioned Yoko a few times now. Have you got any memories of meeting her for the first time? I mean, for for 
someone like me, the idea of going to the Dakota or wherever it was that you went would be quite a, a scary experience. Was it that like that? It would have been. It would have been. I mean, I, I, this is my, after meeting John, my second race of aggressors, I didn't interview Yoko in the Dakota. I was, I was asked to do so uh, because you know, Yoko knew who I was and she liked mm. the stuff I was doing. I think I might have met her once by then, but she wanted Mojo to send to send me over to do um story in the dakota and this would have been a dream come true for me unfortunately i was i just couldn't do it i was just too busy i was it seems trivial now but that year i was launching a load of websites okay q and mojo and smash hits and kiss and it, seemed, it all seems a bit tri- kerrang it all seems a bit trivial now but that was my day job and i couldn't go i couldn't take two days off to go to the coast which would have been wonderful I remember the first time I met Yoko was, um, I don't know what it was, it was some kind of PR launch for something or other, John, John Lennon book or something, but we all met in some private club and I was with, I was with Neil Aspinall, the Beatles guy, who I met, uh, I knew him quite well. Okay. Um, uh, who else? There was a few other people though. Neil was a tricky man because even okay. though we grew up in actually, we physically grew up in the same street in Liverpool, although in different uh, different decades hmm. I would have always thought I'd have a bit more in common with Neil but I didn't he was a very closely guarded man um, but uh, he was there and Yoko was there it was actually far I was actually at a far better time with Yoko than I did with Neil this bloke who came from the same street as Neil Liverpool Yoko was lovely she was on yeah. very good form and um, she was very glamorous uh, by that stage um, she'd always been I mean, I always thought she was very beautiful, but she was quite dowdy, you know, um, on purpose, I suppose. But by, by the 2000s, she reinvented herself as this really glamorous, hard-edged New York fashion girl, you know, who knocked about with all the cool dance club people and made some great records with those cool dance club people as well. But she was very good. I mean, she knew me, she knew me and she knew that I knew Sean. And okay. So we got on really well. And she's... She's obviously it helps if she knows you and knows that you're kind of on her side a bit, so hmm. she's fine. But the strange thing with her was that she knows that I'm very close to Paul as well. And um, of course, yeah, I'm, I never thought about that connection. Did that did that come up in, in like a conversation at any point? In, it, it, it has done indirectly um, a bit. Um, it's funny because, um, as a, I suppose, as a journalist, my habit was always because I'm not a confrontational tabloid journalist, my habit has always been to try and see the world through the, from the viewpoint of the person I'm talking to, to try and produce something um, that at least understands their point of view. And talking to Yoko, it's strange that um, her point of view down the years has always been, that, you know, they think I'm this terrible, this terrible oriental dragon lady, but I'm actually a, I'm actually a very insecure um, and a widow bringing up her son in New York um, who doesn't really know how to play the media. Whereas Paul, Paul is, Paul is a pro. Paul has known how to play the media since he was 19 years old. Mm. John never really knew how to do it, but Paul always knew how to play the media. John can always be very, uh, Paul can always be very confident with the media. And the media will always like Paul because he knows how to um, make them feel at home. I don't know how to do that. Um, I, I mean, I know that she's kind of playing me in a way, but um, 
I thought. I suddenly thought, yes, she does feel rich. As she, you know, she's immensely rich. Mm. She's immensely well connected. But at the same time, she feels she's been without any kind of um, powerful media presence. Mm. Uh, I don't know if that's quite so true now, but... Um, Anyway, she never feels that she's had an easy time. But then he talks to Bob McCartney. He doesn't feel he's had an easy time. None of them ever feel. <laughs> Who'd be a beater, eh? Who'd be a beater or a beater wife? Certainly not me. Um, so just, just to conclude, obviously, as we've said at the start, it, it's been 23 years now since this book was first published, which I have to confess, I remember buying the original myself. I, I was uh, the ripe old age of 14 at the time. And I popped in, I, I went into into my Waterstones uh, where, where I live and, and emerge with the book, which I've still got in at home now. Um, so yeah, 23 years have gone by. Do you think the perception of John has changed over those years? Obviously, Paul's reputation generally, I think, has improved over, yes, you know, in that time. Yeah. The perception yeah. of him through the 80s and even into the 90s you know, you know as well as me, as per your story that you told about going to interview Paul in 79, was pretty low, certainly in the UK. Yeah. That's yeah. definitely changed, partly because of the quality of his solo work, I think, of, of records like Chaos and Creation and Memory Almost Fall, and partly because he's still here, isn't he? You know, he's still yeah. making making music and, and, and touring, etc. Do you think yeah. the perception of John has changed in those 23 years? I think, as I, as I think I might, um, as I hinted before, I don't think it's so much changed as um, narrowed, and um, it's 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 certainly simplified, and perhaps uh, oversimplified. Um, I mean, I, I'm pleased that he's still famous. I mean, the reason. I mean, the reason it goes without saying. The reason this book is out now is because this is a year with a zero on the end, 2020. Any year with a zero on an end is a John Lennon anniversary. Mm. It's a it's a double, it's a double John Lennon anniversary because 1940 is born, 1980 he died, and uh, 2020 again is a nice round figure. And um, so there, you know, there is a little lot of John Lennon books actually, um, which mine is a very minor. Mine's just a reissue of a quite simple, basic John Lennon book. But there are some bigger ones um, out there, and. Um, I'm sure they're very good as well. Um, so that's why this book is out now. And there is, so that, that suggests there is still a great level of interest in John. Mm. Um, and those books, I hope, will broaden the, um, broaden the understanding of, of, uh, of John. I just, I, I just want people to think of it. I'd like people to think of him as a complicated, unpredictable kind of um, character. Um, you know, he certainly believed in world peace, but he was certainly prone to outbreaks of irrational hatred himself. And, and he knew that. He admitted that. Again, you know, you, there's, no, there's no accusation you can level at John that, that, that he didn't get to before you did and admit to in one of his songs, you know. He was, he was really nasty to friends and to, to women and to wives and girlfriends. But before he admitted all this in interviews, he admitted this in songs, you know, this is all there. It was all hiding in plain sight. And towards the end, he gave a long series of very confessional interviews. There's no kind of skeletons in John Lennon's cupboard that, um, you know, even the books that have come out since that, that claim to be revealing all about the untold John Lennon and blah, blah, blah. 
they never come up with anything specially scandalous that you hadn't already alerted us to, I feel. So, um, but I would like people to recognise that that's all there in the music as well. And um, um, he wasn't a saint by any means, and he would have been embarrassed and, I suppose, deeply amused if he if he if he had any inkling that in days to come people would think of him as the you know, the man and the you know the the guru in a white suit who ended the Vietnam War or whatever gross oversimplifications <laughs> we tend to put on him now. He would have thought, "Well, that's a joke, isn't it?" Um, and he had this very subversive, very scouse sense of humour of sending himself up. Um, he could certainly be pompous for a few minutes, but 10 minutes later, he was setting himself up better than anybody else could set himself up. And um, so I love all that about him. And I, and I love the way that's all captured within that uh, last 10 years of music that he made. And I love that even after Double Fantasy and Milk and Honey, uh, the archives were emptied. The, 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 you know, the dregs weren't um, reached. There's still an awful lot of John Lennon stuff that hasn't come out, and perhaps you know it through bootlegs and so forth, or radio broadcasts. Mm. But the stuff that's been put out officially through the anthology, it's really, really good stuff. So um, I think his, I think his, his, um, his archive has been pretty well looked after. Um, things have been put out that you know, they're not oversold. They're not the you know, the anthology is not sold as. The job, the John Lennon classics that you never heard of, blah 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 blah. It's not. It's, it's you know, it's kind of the rest of John Lennon that you you know, if you want, it's there and it's worth hearing. And a lot of it really is, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think you mentioned some of the other books. Obviously, this is the podcast about books um, about John. I think the answers to all the questions that you have about John are, are answered in his his music. Uh, and the beauty of this book is that it, it talks about his music and that's uh, that's what that's why we're all here that's why we're all here um anyway it's been a fascinating hour paul thank you that's that's flown by hasn't it um thank you so much for your time the the book is the complete john lennon songs all the songs all the stories all the lyrics 1970 to 1980 paul Dunoy, thank you so much for your time it was my pleasure joe thanks so much for inviting me